Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest coming to us from the UK. His name is Tim Marshall, and he just published a book, at least in the US, two days ago, November 9th, 2021. Title of the book is The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World, which is currently right now number one in the UK. So kudos and congratulations to Tim. Uh, Tim Marshall was a diplomatic editor and foreign correspondent for Sky News. After 30 years experience in news reporting and presenting, he left his full-time news journalism to concentrate on writing and analysis. Uh, after three years as IRN's Paris correspondent and extensive work for BBC Radio and TV, Tim joined Sky News reporting from Europe, USA, Asia, and then became Middle East correspondent based in Jerusalem. He's written for many of the national newspapers, including the Times, Guardian, Daily Telegraph, and Sunday Times in the UK. Tim's first book, Shadow Play, The Overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic, was a bestseller in former Yugoslavia and continues to be one of the most highly regarded accounts of that period. Tim has been shot with bird pellet in Cairo, hit over the head with a plank of wood in London, bruised by the police in Tehran, arrested by Serbian intelligence, detained in Damascus, declared persona non grata in Croatia, and bombed by the RAF in Belgrade and tear gassed all over the world. So he's still with us. Uh, he's written seven books. He has a children's book coming out that's based upon one of his other books. But um, his other book that he wrote in 2015 sold over a million copies. The title of that one is Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Explain Everything About the World. He's also written Worth Dying for the Power and Politics of Flags, 2016, and Age of Walls, How Barriers Between Nations Are Changing Our World, 2018. But again, we're going to talk about this book, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. So, Tim Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, William. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Awesome. Well, I'm delighted that you agreed to the interview. Can you talk? You have a very long kind of background. Can you talk kind of where your interest shifted from being in kind of public journalism to writing these types of books about maps and geography? Uh, yeah, I'm in my early 60s now. Um, and I was in my mid 50s. And uh, since 9-11, I've been sprinting. And I used to say to some of the younger guys uh, in TV, look, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, okay? And there was me sprinting for about 15 years because, you know, it was Afghanistan, then it was Iraq and Iraq and Iraq, and then it was Israel and Gaza, and then it was Libya, and then it was Afghanistan and Iraq, and and finally it was Syria. <clears throat> and um, a, 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 a good friend of mine was also killed uh, in Egypt, shot dead, uh, Mickey. And then uh, about a year later, I was on my third or fourth trip into Syria, and I had a couple of narrow escapes. And I just thought, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> so I think timing's everything, you know. You gotta, you've got to know when to quit. And I didn't want to be one of those old guys running around the newsroom saying, oh, it was better in my day, because, you know, now is pretty good always, I hope. So I, I quit. And I wanted to write books, Um and I was pleasantly surprised when one of them seemed to strike a chord and seven books later, here we are. All right. Congratulations. I mean, uh, you have, I think in, in the U.S., you have like over 2,000 five-star reviews on Prisoners wow. of Geography. So in the way you break down the power of geography is you cover 10 kind of zones or countries. And can you kind of talk about your overarching view and how you kind of selected those specific areas to uh, be avenues of inquiry. Yeah. There's a, <clears throat> a theme running through the book that we're in the multipolar world. 
you know, bipolar is long gone. The unipolar moment of America is gone deep into the multipolar. And in the multipolar world, a lot of nations are jostling around. So I looked at some of the most important ones that are having a big effect. Australia, increasingly important in what is becoming the center of the world, Indo-Pacific. Uh, Ethiopia, the power in the Horn of Africa region. Iran, projecting its power out across uh, the Middle East. The Sahel region, just below the Sahara, is in all sorts of trouble and sucking in 5,000 French troops, 400 British troops, and quite a lot of American uh, hardware and special forces. So I just looked at these second-tier areas, which are allowed to play in the ill-discipline of a multipolar world. Again, in a bipolar world, you know, you've got two big policemen, for better or worse, and I'm not making a case for or against it, and they constrained, uh, and at least you could you could you could figure out what was going on within that frame. In this, it's a bit like the Wild West. The other thing that's going theme that's going through the book, I hope, is that there are now. Well, it was a year ago. There were hints, and I now think it's pretty much front and center. We're heading back to some form of Cold War, some form of bipolar world, USA, China. And countries are beginning to make their choices. So prisoners of geography was the big stuff. China, Russia, United States, India, Pakistan, continent of Africa. This is down one level, but the same theory, which is that you start with the geography. Once you figure it out of a country or region, you layer on the history, then you layer on the current affairs. Right. So there's a lot going on. You're right. The U.S. is kind of in a declining influence. China's definitely growing. And all these chess pieces, these nation states and geographies yeah. switching. I mean, you kind of start off in Australia. Do you want to talk about how Australia kind of fits into this new uniform yeah. world? I mean, firstly, the geography, it is important. It's a massive, it's a continent. And it's got a coastline because it's a single nation state. If you want to patrol your sea lanes, and guard your coast, you better have a pretty big navy. They can't. They can't have one. Uh, there's about 27 million Australians. 85% of them cling to the uh, the bit on the right of the map, starting in uh, Brisbane and coming down through Sydney, Melbourne to Adelaide. 85%. And that's because that's where the water is. Go over from there and you're, you're into the outback. So if you can't grow a big population to staff a big navy, you need a big friend. And that used to be us. World War II, we were a bit busy. They were threatened by Japan. They needed a new big friend. You ran, you, the posse was rounded up and you rode in. And they've been there ever since. That's a very, very broad brush geography. In 2021, <clears throat> a new threat appears on their horizon. This time, not Japan, this time China. In fact, Japan is an ally of them now. And it threatens to break out down through the Pacific coming closer to them, buying up ports, uh, putting in fishing ships, which we all know are spy ships. Everybody has them. I'm not making a case against China. Influencing all the small islands. And Australia knows if this is allowed to progress without being contained, then they're going to be really under a lot of pressure to side with China on X, Y, and Z. And they don't want to. They're a westernized democracy. 
So they've they've made their choice, I think, for this 21st century. And it, it showed with the recent submarine deal that was done with the British and the Americans. They've made their choice. They're sticking with the United States. And they, they are a crucial linchpin. I have a Mercator map in front of me. That's the classic flat map most of us use. Right slap bang in the middle. Britain. But it's out of date. We should shunt the whole map across because the center of the world now is the Indo-Pacific and the hinge country in it, Australia. Right. It is fascinating. And so they have a very peculiar relationship with China. So they're sending off a lot of their natural resources. Yeah. Beef <laughs> are going to China, but they don't want the influence and the encroachment. And uh, China is, uh, you know, definitely talking a big game. So the is Australia as a very comparatively population-wise, yeah. uh, is always going to be in a peculiar position at, at the front there. And, and they, you know, they're really aware of this. Um, <clears throat> you know, their cultural ties, their linguistic ties, their political ties are across over there with you guys. Just above them, though, is this giant that is influencing everything and everyone. Um, <clears throat> and you're right about their economy. They send a hell of a lot of stuff there. But what happened last year... Uh, they had called for an international inquiry into COVID. Where did it come from? And we all knew what it was about. Chinese went nuts. I mean, incandescent with rage. Pretty much said, you will retract that. You do not want an international inquiry. And the Aussies said, and it's in their character. Uh, you know, it's a tough environment they grew up in. They said, no, an inquiry. China put 200% of Australian wine. Imports collapsed. They've put loads of tariffs on other big parts of the Australian economy, and they haven't budged an inch. In fact, they've doubled down. They're sticking with the Americans. So this new architecture of the 21st century is being uh, erected. And um, I don't like the term the West much anymore. There is a West. Uh, it, it is. There is a concept of it, and, and there is a geographical area. But I think a more useful term this century is the advanced industrialized democracies. Because then you're putting in India, South Korea, Japan, Australia, the Western countries. And the 21st century to me, in the broadest brush sense, is the authoritarian states and the advanced industrialized democracies. And I think that's where the, you know, the tension, the pushing the pull is. Right, the friction. So Australia is down, China is growing, and then to the west of China are... Uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, a little bit farther away, who are kind of rivals. There's a lot of enmity between those two groups. Can you talk about their geography and how that will impact kind of the uh, the future? <clears throat> the Saudis are really interesting. We all know the issues there. We know the, 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 the highest echelons of the leadership appear to have overseen the assassination of one of their own journalists in Turkey. That does not mean that they are not necessarily simultaneously forward-looking and open to new ideas. You know, it is possible to be two things at the same time. And they've read the future. They know we will, over decades, wean ourselves off fossil fuels. What else have they got to sell? They're not going to buy their sand. So there was 2 million of them when oil was, and gas was found. Now there's 30 million of them. How do you sustain that country? So they've read the future. They know the American security umbrella will close as, as you slowly go away because why would you have all your resources there 
if you're not using oil and gas in 50 years. So they are diversifying. They are going big into renewables, big into tourism. They are trying to open up the workforce, including to women, slowly, because there's a lot of religious tensions there. If you go too fast, you may blow the lot. But to try to connect it onto Iran, they are also the leadership feels itself to be the custodian of the two holy mosques, two holy cities, Mecca and Medina. That's their right. It's in their country. But there are other challenges for it. Across the Gulf, there's the Iranians who happen to be mostly Shia. Sunni, uh, Saudis are Sunni. Right. So we've and, and there's a great rivalry has been for centuries between them. And there is this religious divide. I wouldn't want to make too much of it, but it's a factor. So into Iran. When the Americans invaded Iraq, they overthrew a Sunni dominated dictatorship. The form of democracy that has now emerged, actually, the majority Shia are mostly in charge. And the Shia militias that are paid for by Iran are a pretty dominant force in Iran, in Iraq. So the Americans, without meaning to, have delivered to the Persians, the Iranians, their great dream to safeguard their western flank. Because that's where, from Mesopotamia and the Arabic world, they used to be threatened. No one's going to threaten them from that direction now. The, the Iraqis, they had a war 30 years ago. No, they're much closer now. So the Iranians no longer feel the, the elite <clears throat> threatened in that respect. I mean, you guys still may come to blows, but you're not going ashore. And there's no way you right. guys are going ashore. It's been pretty rough, hasn't it, the last 20 years? Yeah. Okay. So they now are much more emboldened and have been for years to push out a bit more. So here's the geography bit. You're in Tehran. You're Shia-dominated. You use a lot of the Shia population in Iraq to connect. You then look next door into Syria, where despite being a very small minority, the Alawites, who were a type of Shia Muslim, are in charge. Assad's an Alawite. So you fight. Hundreds of Iranian troops have died in, in Syria fighting in that war to keep him in power. I'm connecting these dots now. And next door, as you know, in, in Lebanon, Hezbollah, a Shia uh, militia armed by Iran is the most powerful force in the country. I've now projected all the way across to the Mediterranean. And that geographic impetus was why they, 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 they fought in, in Syria and why other people fought to break that corridor. And they feel themselves to be the true heirs of Mecca and Medina. So there's this real tension between the Saudis and the Iranians. Last bit of this jigsaw. Sorry to be so long-winded, William. Um, so, you know, they are looking ahead 20, 30 years. The Americans are already saying, you know, we're not so bothered about that anymore, especially since you have your shale gas and other things. The Americans are trying to get out of... Uh, other places like the Sahel and draw down a bit in Europe so you can focus more on Asia Pacific. And they're desperate for the Europeans to do more. We, we could talk about Ukraine, where the Americans are shaking the Europeans and saying, will you wake up? But that's another story. So the, the, the Saudis are looking around thinking, what do we do when the Americans have gone? Well, the UAE, which is several years ahead of Saudi, have already made their choice. Who are they friends with now? Israel. I mean, it, it sounds unthinkable, William, but I believe in a few years' time, if things are similar to where they are now, after the king has gone and the crown prince has taken over, I can, I can see a slow shift as, as if they still think the Iranians are a threat. And if they make peace, fine. But if they don't, 
The Saudis will be looking across to the Israelis uh, and some form of loose, you know, bit of a distant, but some sort of alliance. Wow. Yeah. It's really is changing. I mean, the Abrahamic agreements were really kind of a revolution in a lot of ways because Israel was constantly in conflict with so many of its neighbors now. Actually having these agreements with an Arab country is really, uh, really a change. But yeah, so you see the U.S. is going to recede. It's come out of Afghanistan, probably wind down in Iraq. Um, you have a section on kind of the U.K. geography, incredible, you know, the empire. Where do you think that the current state of the U.K. is in the future? You probably know, uh, William, the, the old, uh, there's an adage that history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. You know, it, it, it looks a bit like that word there and rhymes with it. it and I, I, I think we're rhyming again. Um, again, you know, we have to talk broad brush because we only have half an hour, 40 minutes. De Gaulle, French leader in World War II, and Churchill, British leader in World War II, had a stand-up blazing row once. And in it, uh, Churchill said what is now a famous quote in, in, in the UK, if Britain ever has to choose between Europe and the the, the the deep blue sea, we will always choose the deep blue sea. He went on in that route to say, and if I ever have to choose between you and Eisenhower, uh, Roosevelt, I'm choosing Roosevelt. Well, Brexit is a little bit about that. It's about choosing the deep blue sea. Um, but with a recognition that we are a junior partner with those guys over there across the deep blue sea, you, you know, we, we accept we're a junior partner. The other way it rhymes is that France, after World War II, de Gaulle <clears throat> wanted to have strategic autonomy. This is a modern phrase, but you know they had they would have had a version of it. It's why he took them out. He, he built France back up, got them the force de frappe, the uh, nuclear weapons that they have, took them out of NATO's military command, and tried to have strategic autonomy. Fast forward to now, and France is in the EU but it seeks to lead the EU and dominate the EU as the, the, the glorious France, and in that way achieve strategic autonomy and not be reliant on the Americans. And what we see between these tensions between Britain and France now is actually those old tensions playing out yet again. So Britain's gone its own way. It's, it's bumpy already. It's going to be bumpy for years. Um, Japanese have said they want us into the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement. That would be interesting as a Pacific nation. Um, I think we can make a go of it. I think geographically we're in a good position. But it's going to be really, really bumpy. But we've, met, like Australia, we've made our choice as well. I don't know if you saw uh, our brand new shiny aircraft carrier. No, I didn't see that. Well, we sailed it down to the South China Sea and we said to the Americans... Don't worry, I know you've only got 11 or 12 aircraft carrier groups, but it's okay because we're here now as well. <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, we know and you know that you don't need this aircraft carrier group down there, but it's this massive, massive signal. We're with you. We've made our choice in, in this 21st century tension of containing China so that it doesn't break out and rule the Pacific. And we're with you on it, um, as are indeed the Dutch, the Canadians, the Japanese. You know, everyone thinks it's inevitable that China will rise to be the most powerful. It may rise to be the most powerful single nation, but I don't see it rising to be more powerful 
than the USA and plucky little Britain, um, the Dutch Navy that was on exercise with the Americans recently, the Japanese Navy, which is very powerful, the Indian Navy, which is in the quad system with Australia, US, Japan, and uh, uh, Australia. Um, I don't see China being stronger than that. And that's what your president is grasping towards in an increasingly uh, worrying way, might I say. Um, you know, I'm, I want to see him interviewed properly, preferably by you, not just reading an auto cue. But he is groping towards this, this grand and perhaps loose alliances that come together and together are much stronger than China. Right. I mean, it is incredible how it's all being reordered with yeah. all of these varying different Australia, UK, yeah. how they're all kind of containing that. And then so that's kind of the UK's geographical position. You talk about two other rivals. It's not just Saudi Arabia and Iran, but it's Greece and Turkey, two long term uh, rivals. How, how do you see them and their geography influencing the future? <clears throat> well, I mean, again, you know, just put the map down and look at Greece. There's the Aegean Sea and there's Turkey. OK, you know, just go. these guys go back a long way. Um, and this is where then the history layers onto the geography, because after the First World War, when the Ottoman Empire was dismantled, um, a lot of its territory was given to other people, and including a lot of the islands, which are now Greek, but they used to be Turkish. And some of these are only a mile off the Turkish coast. Because of international law, um, from your coastline, you have 200 miles of your own exclusive economic zone to fish, oil, sail, whatever. If you have a coastline close to it, say a mile away, you share it. You have half a mile each. So Turkey now in the 21st century, having got over being defeated in the First World War, is now faced with all these islands. They've got like 500 meters of territorial water or three miles or 10 miles. But Greece has got 200 miles in the other direction. And Turkey's not prepared to put up with it anymore, especially since oil and gas have been found down there. So it doesn't have to come to blows. I mean, they have done. They did in the 70s. It doesn't have to. They're both NATO members. And there are enough, hopefully, grown-ups around Europe and, and Canada and America that if, if the shooting starts, they'll pick up the phone and the wires will burn hot and they'll be able to bring it down again. But it is a potential flashpoint because the Turks are already sending uh, uh, survey ships out with their navy right next to the territorial waters of Cyprus and Greece to have a look about whether they're going to drill or not drill. The Greece Navy has gone out to meet them. They've bumped up against each other. The French sent their aircraft carrier down there on Greece's side to send a warning. One time in a separate event, a Turkish warship last year locked its radar, its missile system, onto a French ship. These are all NATO powers we're talking about. This is what I mean about the multipolar world. So, you know, it, it, it is tense. I don't want to be a Cassandra. You know, I'm not predicting death, gloom, and disaster left, right, and center. I'm, I'm an optimist about humanity and, and our future. But, you know, there are these flashpoints, and they're dangerous, and that's one of them. Right, and it could obviously flare up and explode. You have kind of uh, Erdogan is much more aggressive. Yeah. And there's a real bad blood between the Greeks and the, and the Turks going yeah. way back, Seriously. hundreds of years. Yeah. There used to be, I mean... I think there was a huge, it was Ephesus or something like that, was majority kind of Greek. There were Greek yeah. enclaves and they were all 
genocided or fought after the war, really ugly stuff. So, oh, I mean, and also, <clears throat> I mean, you know, it, it does. It goes all the way back to the Troy. <laughs> True. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, there's a line in the book about something like the Greeks bet on a horse and lost. But I won't. I'll, I'll go past that. So there's, there is all this history, but you know the the population exchanges which happened after many massacres. Were, it's only a hundred years. Yeah. You know that's really not very much in the collective historical memory. I mean, look, look at the effect the Civil War still has on on you guys in the states. Still so, talking about war yeah. for us. You know, it's it's not that long in the collective memory, and so those grievances and that bitterness. I'm afraid you only have to scratch the surface and you find it, which is again why you know it needs calm heads. Right. Yeah. The venom is still there. The venom is still in that in that in that region. I mean, one of the interesting or, or uh, geographical regions you focus on in the book that not a lot of people, at least in the States, would know much about is the Sahel, yeah. this uh, sub-Saharan area. Can you talk about that as a and its geographic importance? Yeah. <clears throat> um, hey, not a lot of people here know about it, nor that we've got 400 combat troops down there. Uh, they had their first contact with um, what may have been ISIS last, last month. Um, in Arabic, well, the, uh, Sahel is an Arabic word. It means shoreline. And the idea is that there is the Sea of Sand of the Sahara Desert, which is, you know, you know, just starts just at the top of Africa and North Africa and comes down. And there's these five Sahelian countries uh, because it gets slightly greener. It's still pretty arid there, but slightly greener. And it's always been a troubled area. Colonialism didn't help. They've pushed, you know, loads of different nations into and drawn some lines and said, right, you're all one people, get on with it. And it hasn't really worked that well. And then you fast forward, uh, there's desertification going on, drought. Um, so, you know, within this very volatile area, and then you... We, uh, we helped to overthrow Gaddafi, at which point the thousands of mercenaries he had in what was called the Islamic legions, who came from these Sahelian countries, looted all their barracks, picked up all their heavy weapons, and went back home and restarted the wars that they used to be having decades ago. Mali being a classic example of a country where the top half is, speaks one language and, and looks ethnically one way, and the bottom half is completely different. And the Timbuktu is the dividing line in the river Niger. Um, so coming into that is ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda thinking, great, another ungoverned space. Let's you know, make as much mess as we can to try and collapse this and take it over, you know, Afghanistan in, near North Africa. So what are we going to do? Well, you guys are already there. With, you've got helicopters, you've got drones, you've got a good intelligence gathering and a few special forces. In fact, you lost... Uh, sadly, some special forces there last year, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're saying to the Europeans, guys, it's on your doorstep. Can you do more? Now, the French have put 5,000 troops in and lost 50 or 60 of them. British have put 400 in. Various European nations have put troops in at the request, I hasten to add, of the Sahelian countries. Why? We could just say, hey, you know, we don't intervene. It's, it's, it doesn't work. I mean, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But if you don't, there's a strong possibility of at least one of these countries, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Chad, one of them collapsing. And if they do, A, Al-Qaeda, ISIS has another ungoverned space from which to project violence. 
But B, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be on the move and they're going to be heading north into the already unstable areas of North Africa and then carrying on into Europe. So, you know, conflict, climate change, poverty, terrorism, existing, it's all swirling around there. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those places that you've got to at the very least contain it. And it's a work in progress. Right. So that any destabilization there will further migration. Yeah problems in the region. I don't even know if Libya is really stabilized. No, so it just, would just yeah, <laughs> it just caused more grief and problems. I mean, yeah, it's just a really tough environment right now. I think even with throwing some COVID too. I mean, how do you see kind of that area? You talk about Ethiopia too. I mean, what's, what's the G ge- how's that geographic geography going to influence the future? Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> If you can take it as a whole, and it's beyond the Sahel, because next to the Sahel, you then have Sudan and Ethiopia. Well, Sudan's just had another military coup, and there are ethnicities in there that were fighting, that had stopped fighting because there was civilian rule slowly coming back. They may decide to carry on now. Next door in Ethiopia, when I I finished the book, the civil war had started, and I, I write about it, but it's got much, much worse in the last year. And I do believe that the problems of the Sahel are going to spread also across to the Atlantic uh, uh, West African coast countries. So what you have now is all the way from the Atlantic, right across the sort of second fifth of Africa, all the way to the Red Sea, a huge corridor of instability. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, what has it got to do with me? Well, it's got to do with you because of terrorism. It's got to do with you because of... um, the mass migration of peoples uh, upsetting the equilibrium in many other countries and knock-on effects, Uh, trade. The Americans have got big interest in Djibouti, which is on the Red Sea, which is also a fragile place. Next door to them is a Chinese base that they've just built there. This is the Horn of Africa leading up to the Suez Canal. How much instability do you want there? How much of your trade? I mean, you remember last year, was it? No, it was this year when the Suez was blocked. Yeah. Well, you know, you can block the Red Sea relatively easy. And it goes down to the Strait of Hormuz, where all the oil and gas comes out near uh, Iran and Iraq. So, you know, these things are not in isolation. So, you know, it is about, uh, first and foremost, it's about people and and, and suffering. But, you know, if you want to go to the big macro level, it's about trade and power and um, interests. And I think it's in all our interests, as well as on a humanitarian level, to try to do what you can there and hope you don't make it worse. Right. And it's also part of the great game, the new great game, this version of it, which involves Western powers in China, all trying to, yeah. I think China's bought like a significant amount of Malawi. Like they so, have huge land holdings. There, so, so William, you, you subscribe that there is a, a sort of great game. Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. it's, a, it's a nasty phrase because it's a game played with people's lives, but you, 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 you see that there is a game that is played. It oh, I think it's always been there. Even when the U.S. was paramount after World War II, mm. they were involved in tinkering around in so many countries around the world. Yeah. And I think it's still going on. I think, unfortunately, the reality is, is geopolitics. There it is. And I, I mean, based in geography, and, and this is why I I do take the approach I I take because you know I'm, I don't argue that geography is destiny, but I think it's part of destiny and it shapes along with other factors, but it is the one I don't think is explained enough. You know, so if you are talking about a great game and the original one in in, uh, Afghanistan, when you 
get the map out and you look where Russia is and it wants to come all the way down and find a warm water port in what is now Pakistan. Uh, and the British are thinking, we don't want a Russian Navy down there. And so we'll move hell and high water to block them. And it's unfortunate for Afghanistan that it's been a blocking area. Yeah, but I, I find these arguments compelling and almost obvious. But there are people that resist them because they don't, some people don't like to think that, that we haven't got the agency to be above all this. But, you know, it's just part and parcel, along with other things like leaders and science and ideas and people. You know, it's, it's one of these major factors. And uh, that's why I write what I write. Right. But I mean, I think that it is. Geography is incredibly important. Location, place, mm. time, but also the meddling of other people in that thing. Like China is going to move west. The Belt and Road Initiative is going all the way actually north of Greece. I think they bought made significant investments in Montenegro. So they're intending to yeah. shoot right across Asia. And now that the U.S. bungled what was going on in Afghanistan. And, uh, <clears throat> Biden at the G7, which was in the U.K. this summer, started talking about, again, this Western advanced, West, advanced industrialized democracies, not just Western, having an alternative to the Belt and Road. And it's a great idea. And he said we would have a, a much better value-added one and also with democracies that you know you can trust. Uh, it's a great idea, but um, given the head start China's got, and um, given that you know there is no advanced industrialized democracies Belt and Road, you know, I mean, you can try and make one, and you can start pushing it, but it's not there at the moment. Right. I mean, but it just entails like all these pieces uh, that you cover are yeah. all going to change so drastically with these new uh, multipolar world and the new changes. It's a totally unsolidified uh, yeah. amorphous movements are taking place that uh, maybe after like World War II when all the countries were exhausted, things stabilized, but now it's not like that. Yeah, there are these patterns of history that, that they're not always the same, but yes, um, you know, post-World War II and the exhaustion of everybody, and the discipline, for, for better or worse, of this bipolar world where people just fell into line. I mean, you know, we, we can look back and say, oh, well, there was the Korean War and there was this conflict and that. And yeah, but in the great, you know, panorama of human history, the last 70 or 80 years have been pretty good for most people and relatively settled. But it, it has started to un, unravel a bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where, where you where you started from, probably the end of the Cold War, you know, probably around about 1990, when lids are getting taken off, when the old nationalisms that had been suppressed, mostly by communism, um, are unleashed again. And then suddenly, you know, I mean, we saw a war last year between um, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And, uh, you know, they had issues with each other before, but when the Soviets took them over, they clamped it. But that's just two examples of dozens. And I think all that is still playing out, along with all the other new factors of, of new technology and mass movement and stuff. So, you know, it is this really difficult, uncertain time. And, and my generation, perhaps your generation, you know, we grew up in, in, in a time of, um, I wouldn't call it certainty, but... A lot of things made sense and a lot of things were pretty fixed and now they're not. And it's a great reminder that don't mistake the time you're in for 
perpetuity. Right. Yeah. It's always shifting. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, not static. Yeah. And I mean, it's really important. I mean, and you go in later on in the book, you talk about space, you talk about space, which is a whole nother geographical influence yeah. on geography, planetary geography. Uh, but really interesting book. Where is the best place for people to get the power of geography? At your local independent bookstore. Gotcha. If they haven't got it, it, ask them to get it because it's worth waiting for. And therefore, you're supporting your local store. Okay. And if you can't or you don't have one, happily, many of the big majors, also good thing in life, big bookstores, they have it as well. Right, right on. So get it from your local bookstore. And then also, do you have any social media or contact information or anything you'd like <clears> to share? There's a landing page on a website I have called the what and the why.com, but it's not really, it used to be a website, but um, I just got too busy to keep it up. I'm on Twitter, uh, iTwittius, which is a, pl a ploy on the old I Claudius, uh, the reluctant Roman Empire Claudius. So I am I. Twittius, I uh, Twittius. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes if people and as you've given me the time and the space to a plug, thank you. There is a children's version uh, coming out in the states of Prisoners of Geography. It's beautifully drawn, not by me, I hasten to add. It's kind of like eight to thirteen-year-olds, um, just beautiful pictures, and you know th that book condensed down to a to a children's book, and that, that's out in the states. Uh, Next week, I think. Next week. So I'll put that also with the link in the right. show notes. So that newer children's version of the book. But again, this book was is titled The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World, published November 9th in the States 2021. And it's number one in the UK by author Tim Marshall. So Tim Marshall, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. Thanks All for right, your time. So, all right. Take care. Congratulations on the book. All right. Stay there.